0: Chapter thirty eight of Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter 38. While the New York June grew hotter and hotter and stickier and stickier, while the crowds crammed together in the subway in a jam as unlovely as a pile of tomato cans in a public dump heap, grew pale in the damp heat. Carl labored in his office and almost every evening called on ruth who was waiting for the first of july when she was to go to cousin pat and in the berkshires carl tried to bring her coolness he ate only poached eggs on toast or soup and salad for dinner that he might not be torpid he gave her moss roses with drops of water like dew on the stems they set out on the box stoop and unfriendly New York Street, adopting, for a time, the frank neighborliness of a village, and exclaimed over every breeze. They talked about the charm of forty degrees below zero, that is, sometimes. Their favorite topic was themselves. She still insisted that she was not in love with him. Who at the idea of being engaged? She might some day go off and get married to someone, but engaged? Never. She finally agreed that they were engaged to be engaged to be engaged one night when they sought the windy housetop. she twisted his arms about her and almost went to sleep with her hair smooth beneath his chin. He sat motionless till his arms ached with the strain till her shoulders seemed to stick into his like a bar of iron, glad that she trusted him enough to doze into a warm slumber in the familiarity of his arms. yet he dared not kiss her throat as he had done at long beach as lovers do carl had thought intently of her warning that she did not care for clothes dancing country clubs ruth would have been caressingly surprised had she known the thought and worried consciousness he gave to the problem of planning parties for her ideas were always popping up in the midst of his work and never giving him rest till he had noted them down on memo papers he carried them about on the backs of envelopes such notes as these join country club take r dances there baskets of fruit for r invite mason w lunch organize tour n y to s f newspaper men on tour probably forbes remember walter's new altitude sixteen thousand nine hundred and fifty-four r to astor roof rim country c He did get a card to the Peace Waters Country Club and take Ruth to a dance there. She seemed to know every other member and danced eloquently. He took her to the Josiah Bagby's for dinner, to the first night of a summer musical comedy. But he was still the stranger in New York, and parties are not to be had by tipping waiters and buying tickets. Half of the half-dozen affairs which they attended were of her inspiration. He was invited to go yachting at Larchmont, motoring swimming on long island with friends of herself and her brothers one evening that strikes into carl's memory of those days of the pays du tendre is the evening on which phil Donleby insisted on celebrating a yale baseball victory by taking them to dinner in the oak room of the ritz carlton under whose alabaster lights among the cosmopolites They dined elaborately and smoked slim imported cigarettes. The thin music of violins took them into the lonely gray groves of the land of wandering tunes, till Phil began to talk, disclosing to them a devotion to beauty, a satirical sense of humor, and a final acceptance of Carl as his friend. A hundred other parties Carl planned while dining alone at inferior restaurants. A hundred times he took ten-cent dessert instead of an exciting fifteen-cent strawberry shortcake to save money for those parties out of such sordid thoughts of nickel coins is built a love enduring and even tolerable before breakfast coffee yet always to him their real life was in simple jaunts out of doors arranged without considering other people her father seemed glad of that he once said to carl giving him a cigar you children had better not let Aunt Emma know that you are enjoying yourselves as you want to. How is the automobile business doing?" It would be pleasant to relate that Carl was inspired by love to put so much of that celebrated American quality punch into his work that the tour car was sweeping the market, or to picture with quietly falling tears the pathos of his business failure at the time when he most needed money. As a matter of fact, the tour car affairs were going as, in real life, most businesses go just fairly well. A few cars were sold. There were prospects of other sales. The Van Zale Corporation neither planned to drop the tour car nor elected our young hero as vice-president of the corporation. In June, Gertrude Cowles and her mother left for Jeroleman. Carl had, since Christmas, seen them about once a month. Gertie had at first represented an an unhappy old friend to whom he had to be kind. Then she seemed never to be able to give up the desire to see him tied down, rather by her affection or by his work. Karl came to regard her as an irritating foe of the freedom which he prized the more because of the increasing bondage of the office. The last stage was pure indifference to her. Gertie was either a chance for simple sweetness, which he failed to take, or she was a peril which he had escaped, according to one's view of her. But, in In any case, he had missed or escaped her, as a romantic hero escaped fire, flood, and plot. She meant nothing to him, never could again. Life had flowed past her, as except in novels with plots, most lives do flow past temporary and fortuitous points of interest. Gertie was farther from him now than those dancing Hawaiian girls whom Ruth and he had hoped some day to see. Yet, by her reaching out for his liberty, Gertie had made him prize Ruth. The 1st of July, 1913 Ruth left for Patton Kerr's Country House in the Berkshires, near Pitfield. Carl wrote her every day. He told her, apropos of cars and roof gardens and aviation records and Sunday motorcycling with Bobby Winslow, that he loved her. He even made, at the end of his letters, the old-fashioned lines of crosses to represent kisses. Whenever he hinted how much he missed her, how much he wanted to feel her startle in his arms, he wondered what she would read out of it, wondered if she would put the letter under her pillow. She answered every other day with friendly letters droll in her descriptions of the people she met. His call of love she did not answer directly but she admitted she missed their play-times and once she wrote him late on a cold berkshire night with a black rain and wind like a baying bloodhound it is so still in my room and so wild outside that i am frightened i have tried to make myself smart in a blue silk dressing-gown and a tosh lace breakfast-cap and i will write neatly with a quill pen from the mayfair but just the same i am a lonely baby and I want you here to comfort me. Would you be too shocked to come? I would put a Navajo blanket on my bed and a papier-mâché Turkish dagger and head of Othello over my bed and pretend it was a cozy corner—that is, of course, if they still have papier-mâché ornaments. I suppose they still have in Harlem and Brooklyn. We would sit very quietly in two wicker chairs on either side of my fireplace and listen to the swollen brook in the ravine just below my window. But with no hawk here, the wind keeps wailing that Pan is dead, that there won't ever again be any sunshine in the valley, dear. It really isn't safe to be writing like this. After reading it, you will suppose that it's just you that I am lonely for. But, of course, I'd be glad for Phil, or Puggy Curran, or your nice, solemn Walter McManus, or— any suitor who would make foolish noises and hide me from the wind's haunting Now i will seal this up and not send it in the morning your playmate ruth here is one small kiss on the forehead but remember it is just because of the wind and rain presumably she did mail the letter at least he received it he carried her letters in his side pocket of his coat till the envelopes were worn at the edges nearly covered with smudged pencil notes about things he wanted to keep in mind and would of course have kept in mind without making notes he kept finding new meanings in her letters he wanted them to indicate that she loved him and any ambiguous phrase signified successively that she loved laughed at loathed and loved him once he got up from bed to take another look at her letter and see whether she had said I hope you had a dear good time at the Explorer's Club dinner, or I hope you had a good time, dear. Carl was entirely sincere in his worried investigation of her state of mind. He knew that both Ruth and he had the instability as well as the initiative of a vagabond. So quickly could either of them break Love's alliance, if bored. Carl himself, being anything but bored, was as faithfully devoted as the least enterprising of moral young men. He forgot Gertie, did not write to Istra Nash, the artist, and when the Van Zale office got a new telephone girl, a tall, languorous brunette, with shadowy eyes and fine cheeks. He did not even smile at her. But was Ruth so bound? She still refused to admit even that she could fall in love. He knew that Ruth and he were not romantic characters But everyday people with a tendency to quarrel and demand and be slack, he knew that even if the rose dream came true, there would be drab spots on it. And now that she was away with Lennox and Polo to absorb her, could the gauche ignorant Carl Erickson that he privately knew himself to be retain her interest? Late in July he received an invitation to spend a weekend, Friday to Tuesday with Ruth, at the Patton Currers. thirty eight